for today is the changing nature of broadcasting. Joining Jeff Frederick, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, are Jamie Liddy, Clee Cousins, Sally Ann Clark, and Chuck Lowry. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. As the 1950s approached and then unfolded, any number of fascinating technological developments were on their way. Some of them were frightening. In 1949, the Soviet Union exploded their first atomic bomb, kick-starting an arms race that proliferated for decades and occasionally brought the nation to the brink of global thermonuclear war. Polyester, frightening for an entirely different set of reasons, became the rage, eventually leading to a plague on American society that might be summarized as the onset of the leisure suit. Truly scary indeed. Along the way, television became a technological, cultural, economic, and social phenomenon. In 1945, the year the Germans and Japanese surrendered, ending the Second World War, approximately 5,000 television sets existed in America, meaning less than 1% of households had one. A decade later, almost 31 were dotting the landscape of urban, suburban, and rural America, a massive change later echoed only by the onset of the home computer and cell phone. By 1978, the United States had 73 million televisions, had watched the Vietnam War on it, as well as the protest movements designed to end it, and had witnessed the arrival of a telegenic president, John Kennedy, and the resignation of another, not so telegenic, Richard Nixon. Along the way, we watched in our living rooms the unfolding drama of the civil rights movement, a moon landing, and a host of other events that typified the zeitgeist of a new generation. Lucy and Gunsmoke created one set of expectations for viewing. All in the Family, 60 Minutes, and MASH took us in a different direction. Clearly, television is changing with content available on an ever-expanding list of platforms. Today, the number of households with a landline phone is ever-decreasing, and it's fair to wonder if the number of television sets might one day as well. We will not consume less content because, in fact, we are addicted. But how we consume content through phones, tablets, laptops, and other mechanisms may make the idea of gathering around the television akin to looking at a Norman Rockwell work, a quaint and emblematic snapshot of a bygone era that seems unlikely to return. Television changed America, and now America seems poised to change television. How does it work? What goes on behind the scenes, and what is the future of broadcasting, electronic journalism, and content? To help answer these questions, we have a great panel, including Dr. Jamie Liddy, Clee Cousins, Sally Ann Clark, and Chuck Lowry. Welcome, everybody. Hi, thank Thanks you. for having us. Yes. So, what attracted you to broadcasting and television, and how did you get your start in this business? Well, I got started in this uh, business um, from actually being a photographer some years ago. I had a chance to work with the great Elmer Hunt from... Uh, uh, this area, and uh, that kind of grew, and I ended up working a lot in multimedia and audiovisual services over a period of time, which kind of moved on over into television and uh, doing a lot of teleconferencing and classroom training and uh, using television as a platform to help that grow. I got more involved with uh, production and uh, the growth of television in, in the educational realm, which ended up moving me over into the commercial world. How about the rest of y'all? Well, I was going to work in radio and print. 
So when I went to college, I was fully expecting to be in radio and writing for Rolling Stone magazine and producing rockumentaries for Westwood One Radio Network. But television in the suburbs paid more than the radio offers that I had in New York City. And that's how I got into television. I got into television because I love the news. I started out actually as a newspaper reporter for more than 10 years. Uh, then I went into television and became a newsroom manager, managing reporters and photographers, and decided I wanted to go on air. I became an on-air uh, reporter. Basically, I got my love for television and the news from my grandparents. Uh, they always read the paper daily, and we always watched the 6 o'clock news. So that's how I got my start. Sally Ann? Well, I was kind of somewhat pushed into it. I was working in the corporate field for a company that was downsizing and moving to Mexico. So I landed down here at UNCP, and I didn't like just sitting around drawing unemployment and going to school, so I applied for this position. And here I am 22 years later and learned a lot and love every day because everything's something new and exciting. I think it's interesting that everybody sort of um, started in one direction and then ended up maybe somewhere other than w where they thought they might be. So what are some of the things that television viewers don't really realize about the process of broadcasting? Take us behind the scenes a little bit and teach us something that we don't know. I think most people probably don't realize how large a production crew is. But conversely, these days, they don't realize how small that other production crews can be. Large productions like a football game or a golf tournament just seem to get larger at the same time that many broadcast processes have been designed to eliminate jobs and, and can be accomplished by a so-called one-man band. Even uh, the magic yellow downline on a football broadcast Right? It's probably the best thing to ever happen to a football broadcast when it debuted in 1998. But at the time, it took a huge truck to accomplish this extremely technical feat. It took about four men running five racks worth of equipment, and it was about $30,000 per game to put this magic yellow downline graphic on a football broadcast. Today, one technician can run it with a couple of computers, and honestly, they don't even have to be at the venue, that person. So I, I think there's a lot of, quote, magic that goes behind the scenes that the viewers at home just will never know. Sally, what were you going to say? Oh, absolutely. I think they don't understand the prep time even before you get to the venue or to the studio for broadcasting, what it takes to set up, for example, you know, you got to establish your event site or double-check your equipment in the studio control room, making sure that it's ready for the shoot, getting in touch with contacts, for instance, your crew members, trying to line those up, and also getting permissions, permission slips signed and approved for such an event. I agree that production time, I think, is something that the public isn't really aware of. Uh, as far as broadcast journalism, uh, Dr. Liddy talked about cuts in TV, and uh, I was a victim of <laughs> cuts in broadcasting when I first started out. I was a one-man band, so I 
not only was a journalist and went out and interviewed people, I carried my own camera, uh, I had to edit my own video, voice my own stories, and that took a lot of time. People would see me on TV and I have my makeup on, my hair done, and thought it was a pretty glamorous job, but a whole lot goes into being a broadcast reporter. And I, I don't think most people understand that. Some students who come to us, they don't understand that initially. And the public comes to you wanting you to shoot something or record a show, and they just think all you've got to do is set up a camera and point and shoot, but a lot of times don't understand what it takes to prep for it. The yeah. three-minute story that they saw you delivering was actually hours and hours of prep and then editing and then getting ready to go. Exactly. And that three-minute story was probably one and a half minutes. Right. Honestly. <laughs> yes. I remember once I was in Raleigh, and I was a one-man band, and they sent me out to cover an ice storm. So imagine carrying a tripod <laughs> on ice. I mean, it was tough, you know? But that I loved it. In order to be a broadcast journalist, I think you have to love it. What about you, Chuck? You've, you've done all kinds of remote uh, and studio-type uh, events. Well, to be honest, it, it, the industry has changed dramatically just in the last five years. It, it keeps changing. Uh, there's things that are coming along now called Remy's, and Remy's happen mainly whenever uh, it's a, I, I think a new term that some of the networks come up with, like ESPN, um, is that whenever you producing and directing an event, and the commentators, the producer, the director, they're all in Connecticut in their studio or in a control room. Uh, but the event might be, say, like in Alabama or in California, uh, or even in a foreign land, it's 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 a given. And uh, what happens there is that uh, a lot of times you will have a production facility, a small production facility at this, that has some higher end integrated intercom systems that's tied into Twisted Pair, which is phone lines. And now they're starting to get to the point to where they're improving all the uh, um, uh, fiber integration pieces to where they're delivering. Um, these Remy's uh, directly back to the networks over fiber, and they're pushing and the directors are setting in uh, Bristol or wherever, and they're directing a show and talking to a camera guy that, that is in a, on a football game. And then you also have commentators that might be sitting in a studio watching a monitor with you that might be looking at all the different camera angles as you are and uh, calling the game. And at the end of the game, a good sign is watching, uh, say like for instance, a basketball game, if you're watching a commentator do an interview with a coach, and you know, say for instance, if the coach has on the headset and they're interacting that way, and you don't see, uh, uh, say, a commentator interviewing that person, that's because he's probably in a different place mm -hmm. uh, and interviewing that person. They're interacting essentially over a phone line, uh, which works, it's working, and uh, they're saving tons and tons of money and being able to deliver more and more entertainment to you as the customer at home. You know, with all the different sporting events that are coming up and all the different outlets that's being created by uh, ESPN and ABC and CBS and all the major networks, they're all content driven. And, you know, it, it's not unusual, say for instance, to do a Duke game that's maybe only on ESPN3, or you know, it may end up generating up to ESPNU or 
or, you know, or, or uh, maybe even to the mothership as we refer to it, or even to the network end. And in some cases, the Remy piece uh, works well, like with international. Like um, uh, this past year, I had a chance to work with uh, the folks in doing an uh, uh, international show for Fox that uh, we integrated some of the Remy activities over Fox for their international soccer feed. And uh, that worked well. So physical proximity to the actual event is less critical than ever has been before. Absolutely, and uh, you know, with uh, a lot of the LTN uh, distribution and interacting pieces, say like with what what I mean by LTN is actually a company that makes these particular boxes that that can push stuff right over the internet. Uh, ESPN is now starting to use a lot of the stuff to where they they may have like a fifty meg internet box that you're plugging up uh, a full broadcast to and you may have embedded audio and uh, tied in with video and you're just plugging that right up to a box and it's being delivered to national uh, networks in and, real time in real time uh, the latency between that is uh, in nanoseconds now and it's like almost um, less than a quarter of a second essentially and so the interaction pieces between that is working extremely well. And, you know, LTN boxes are great. Um, satellite companies and uplink companies are starting to lose a lot of business, so you're not really seeing a lot of that effort. They're start, you're starting to see a little turn in that wave of uh, participation between uh, satellite companies because uh, as long as the Internet, the Internet has been a, a huge game changer. I think that the development of fiber optics its impact cannot be overstated at all no. on broadcast. Because it allows better quality of audio, video, and a different way of producing it? It's the speed and the capacity of fiber optics that allows all this. Yeah, fiber and now internet is starting to kind of get an equal to a lot of the fiber. Um, and as time progresses, you're going to start seeing things grow from uh, 720, 1080, to 4K as time progresses, and that's kind of some of the, the things that I see are changing. And that's both in the transmission and the receiving of, Absolutely. of the uh, audio uh, and video. Now don't get me wrong, they're still using the big 53-foot expando tractor trailers that are doing these big productions where you're having the 10, 15 camera show or more. It's not unusual to do one of those shows this week and next week you turn around and you do a four camera show out of a small 16-foot truck or, or, or maybe you have a, a TriCaster or some small gear that uh, say, like for instance, that a conference is providing and you're putting on a production for them and it's being pushed to ESPN over the internet. That's not unusual. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. You're listening to 30 Brave Minutes, a broadcast service of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina.
I'm Jeff Frederick. We're talking about television and broadcasting today. And my guests are Jamie Liddy, Clee Cousins, Sally Ann Clark, and Chuck Lowry. Well, let's set technology aside for a brief second. How else is news gathering and content production changed? I don't think you can set technology aside, actually. I mean, I think that's where the biggest changes came in. And, and those did usher in changes in labor, of course. But I think the basic story forms have not changed much. Uh, I agree. Technology is the game changer. Even um, when I worked in Florida, I remember, and that was in the early 2000s, we had robotic cameras. So technology eliminated camera uh, people on the floor in the studio. So, yeah. so they're motion activated or voice activated cameras? Or? Uh, from a like a someone in control room. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, wasn't it really fun whenever they first started coming out with that technology on how some of the robotics would start running into one another during the middle of the news show? I'm sure. Well, they still do that. <laughs> I, I love to watch the, the bloopers from overseas, like the BBC uses wow. robotically programmed cameras and <laughs> they get off track and they, they pan to the wrong element. And yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So what about the 24-hour news cycle? Obviously, technology made that possible, both in the production side of it and in the um, viewing of it. But how has that changed how, what the expectations of, of, of TV and what the expectations of production are? I worked for a 24-hour station. I worked at News 14 in Raleigh, and it is different. I think for the viewer at home, as I said, when I was a little girl, we gathered around the TV at 6 o'clock as a family to watch. And news. Yeah, now you can get news um, every day, all the time. So it, it changed the dynamics of how the family even watches TV, I think. I think those kinds of stations or channels are the exception to the rule, though. You know, I don't think the broadcast news gathering has changed that much, quote, given a 24-hour news cycle, because the so-called cable news networks don't spend much time on actual newscasts. They're full of talk shows now with yeah. pundits and politicians and other public officials or broadcast personalities who are constantly yelling at each other and interrupting each other. And, and the bread and butter of TV news is still being made at local TV stations or a statewide uh, network like News 14 as well. Right. It was yeah. started by Time Warner and then and Spectrum, Spectrum picked it up. So, you know... I suppose we have seen stations adding newscasts to their days, um, but I wouldn't say that gives us any greater quantity of news because they repeat a lot of stories from one day part to the next. And now that TV stations in any given market are allowed to share management, we see one station providing the news operation for another in the very same city. So you might have your ABC, ABC affiliate doing their 11 p.m. news every weeknight, but they're also producing the 10 p.m. news for their Fox affiliate. Mm -hmm. And um, it might be a little flashier or a little irreverent the way they do it on the, the 10 p.m. But if you stick around for the 11 p.m. on their sister station, it's the same content. Mm -hmm. So repetition both within channels and in multiple channels. Um, the 24-hour news cycle, maybe we don't actually produce 24 hours worth of news. We just produce the same amount. We just keep repackaging it. Is all the opinion just sort of much, uh, the opinion folks, is it just that much easier to produce? It's a 
person on the air available from a remote site saying something really – It's cheap. It's so cheap. And, you know, the technology piece that kind of made this help in staying up to date with some of the technology is that in dealing with upgrading these packages and the 24-hour stories, there's a lot of blocks that they don't even redo. They just freshen up a block. And they just kind of – that content keeps cycling. Yeah. They actually call it the wheel. When I worked at News 14, they'd ask us – the producers would say, what do you have for the wheel? It was continuously, you know – Same story over and over. Same over and over. And you would stick something in new when you got it, but it kept evolving. Right. And in all news radio in the 80s, right, we would maybe freshen the lead sentence for when the story next airs. Or you would choose a different soundbite to go with the same event you covered or issue or story that you covered. So you would find a way to freshen it up. But like Chuck says, I do watch today, and I see they rerun, you know, the exact same newscast, maybe freshen up the weather, of course. They do. You know, like dealing with the sports pieces, you know how fresh the sports pieces, they're always upgrading every 10 minutes. They want to do something fresh or every half hour. And whenever I used to do a lot of the ESPNU stuff, that's all we would do. You know, you might be live for a block, and then they'd roll the other blocks or do other different blocks, and then you'd come back for another live piece. And, you know, for a half-hour show, you may see the talent maybe two minutes. The other three different blocks that might be five minutes apiece was fresh and live, but it was covered up with B-roll. And then you'd wait until two hours later to freshen it up again. How do news decision-makers straddle the fine line between ratings and serving the public? Or do they even distinguish between those two? Well, I used to be an assistant news director. Ratings do matter because it's how you pay the bills, how you pay your employees. But I always thought you still had to approach news from an ethical standpoint and try to give the public the news it needs. But, of course, you know, you want to beat your competition. So you want to put out the best product. So I would always tell reporters to try to have the best writing, announcing, or whatever to beat the competition, but not really sell your soul to the devil or anything to get the ratings. Yeah, no, honestly, broadcast news is a lot different than the entertainment division. So what are we talking about when we talk about broadcasters, right? I mean, I still think news departments have a lot of cushion or a kind of firewall, even though, of course, they have to be concerned whether they have the most ratings compared to their competitors in the same market. But if you look at the entertainment programming, they don't even let shows and networks last more than one episode if they don't hit the ratings that they promised advertisers. You see shows that they're pulled after one. The risk is too high. They'd rather replace it with reruns that sell better. So I think broadcast news is different than broadcast entertainment. I guess broadcast news still gets a pass in a lot of ways. It's still rough. 
Yeah, when you're, you come here to work and your news director has been fired and the new di news director is at the hotel. That happened to me in Florida because yeah. we have ratings. We went through a lot of uh, news directors. They're like uh, professional football coaches. After, after the loss. Yeah, I can't gone. lose for so long, right. you know. And, I didn't uh, think about it that way. Yeah, so I always say it's not a business for people you know, who just didn't really love it because any day you could go in and management has totally changed, which could impact wow. your own job. Is that because we get to get access to daily ratings? Is that because it's a um, not only a 24-hour news cycle, but a 24-hour evaluation cycle within an individual TV station or within an individual media company? Well, the smaller markets don't get daily ratings, no. actually. Um, Metered markets do, uh, but no, not all markets are smaller markets. They get quarterly uh -huh. ratings reports, yes, and then, of course, four times a year there's what's called the sweeps, mm -hmm. where most of the markets are monitored by a diary system. and. Um, when those reports come out, it's like, like Clee said, someone's head could be on the chopping block. But I, I still think substantively the news kind of stays the same and that when they do make changes, they're sort of trivial or surface level. And I don't know if Clee would agree. You might do something flashy at six now or a special segment or you've got more expensive weather graphics. Or an investigative piece. Right, yeah. right. And so... Super-duper Doppler. Yeah. Yes. And I guess you might bring in younger talent. I don't know. You know. Well, uh, when I was in broadcasting, uh, working for a TV stations, TV stations put money into research. And once we had a focus group, and uh, it showed us that people, they responded that they wanted uh, more good news. And we had a segment called Good News, which to me was stupid. Because in reality, people really did not want, <laughs> I mean, no one flips the channels and stops at the station where, you know, the club is planting flowers at the park. That is not sensational right. enough. Right. So sometimes they get it wrong. I thought this was a time that the station got it wrong and the research uh, did not really reflect what people thought. Because focus groups are soft science, mm -hmm. and I, I teach focus group methodology, I run focus groups, but they are probably the softest of the, the social science methods, and yet TV stations use focus group methodology a lot, and the, the sample is not representative, it's not generalizable. Um, you just get a lot of rich data and people tell their stories yeah. and, and justify their answers, but uh, for sure they can get it wrong. Do you remember it was focus groups that decided uh, that that television personality, Christine Kraft, was too old and didn't defer to men? Wow. And it, it ended up being a, a precedent-setting or landmark lawsuit on sex discrimination in, in broadcasting. So they'll, do, they'll gather research in one way or another on everything from what kind of stories to what kind of neckties someone should wear? Absolutely. So that, that probably serves the interest perhaps more of the ratings, but perhaps not so much of actual viewers themselves. Um, what trends are you guys keeping an eye on in television or in broadcasting in general? What's new that you like? What's new that you're suspicious of? 
the mm-hmm. movement towards internet to TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's where we're going. Yeah, and as far as uh, broadcast journalism, I teach students that now you have to be a journalist who can report on multiple platforms. When I was trained, you know, you were trained as a newspaper reporter, a broadcast reporter, but since the internet, you have to know how to write in print form, you have to know how to write in conversational form for your story that will actually be aired. So in a way, the internet is requiring broadcast reporters to have even more skills, you know, to be able to write across multiple platforms. Because every TV station has a website, every newspaper has a website, you know. Our field is increasingly IT related. Exactly. So students have to learn more and more about file formats and codecs and servers. And, you know, Klee just mentioned the convergence on the web of previously disparate kind of skills Mm -hmm. and, and forms. But what strikes me now is that they also have to learn how to do open captions or closed captions really? on their <laughs> videos. Right. Yeah. Right? So that that's another skill where before it was it was enough to say, well now you you need to learn video right. because we have to put your video story on the website. Yes. Well now guess what? You have to learn to open caption that right. video for our website. Because of ADA laws and right. stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. For sure. Anything else that you're noticing on the horizon out there? I think with the uh, changing technology and dealing with uh, broadcasting and, and being able to deliver it, yeah, internet is playing a big part of it. I know whenever internet really first came along, they were calling it super highway. We all know what that is now. But you know, with the uh, what is it, the ATSC that was 1.0 that we're living in now that created HD from analog because we went from uh, 480 to 720, now 1080. Um, I think in time. With the FCC, they're really looking hard at, at, at looking what 3.0 looks like um, in terms of being able to, to create a platform, an IP platform that uh, television as well as the internet will all be delivered to your household. And with that being said, it's going to be able to create more and more different platforms to be delivered to the home and through your handset or your television. I think. TVs will still exist for a long time, but I think in time, uh, the television is going to change, you know, pretty much about like the old CRT and the, um, your, your flat screen went through. I think you're going to see another, in time, another evolution happen, and I think it's within the next half a decade to a decade that you're going to probably start seeing these things change, and it really depends on how the FCC is going to interpret a lot of that. So with all these changes in capability and technology and the ratings piece that's sort of omnipresent out there, how does the industry uh, regulate itself? How does it uh, correct practices that push too far too quickly? Or would you say it doesn't regulate itself? I, in, in my opinion, technology-wise, I think the regulation happens with the uh, uh, subscriber themselves because if they, I don't care how great it is if they don't want it or they don't want to pay for it, um, they're not going to have it. They uh, vote with their wallets. Yeah, they kind of vote with their wallets, in my, my opinion. Because, you know, there's a point to where the consumer goes, okay, that's enough. I don't need to be able to see a, a pixel and hold it up to my eye and be able to 
see every little part of it. I just want to know it looks good. In terms of content, of course, the industry does not regulate itself. But over the last 20 years, gosh, actually since the 80s, the whole um, atmosphere of deregulation has meant that broadcasting can push and push the envelope in terms of, of content, and they're going to get a pass based on, you know, First Amendment protections for content. In broadcasting, particularly on the news side, or for that matter, even on the sports side, um, are the lines clear enough between opinion and reporting? What could be done about that, if anything should be done? Um, I think Dr. Liddy uh, made a great point when she talked about now so many of the news stations have these uh, opinion shows, and some people watch those shows and they confuse that with news. Back in the day, if a television station, for example, uh, had a commentator on, that section was clearly labeled opinion. That was commentary. commentary. Yeah. And I think in those ways, the lines have been blurred, and uh, I'd like to see a little more separation again. Okay, final question. Uh, make a bold prediction about something that will uh, reshape the broadcast or television landscape sometime in the next half a dozen years. Going back to my answer earlier, Internet TV, you know, we're working with a now generation. They want everything now. Therefore, they're getting their news and other things from social media, tweets. You know, it's amazing how many young people don't watch, uh, don't get their news from tra traditional right. television. They don't, they don't wait for 12 or 6 yeah. o'clock news anymore, so, like we sit around yeah. and wait. It's amazing. I think terrestrial over-the-air broadcasting is going to cede their birthright of entertainment programming to the Internet providers. And I think that those traditional kinds of stations will survive in the form of time-dependent spectacles that traditional television does well, sporting events, awards shows, big musical and dance competitions that don't have rerun value. Game shows strike me as being similar, and so the country will never abandon terrestrial over-the-air broadcasting. That wouldn't even be safe, you know, national security-wise. But what those stations carry might end up being slim pickings, and you're going to see comedies, dramas, the so-called made-for-TV movie. I mean, that's all moving to Internet Protocol as the right. delivery platform. Well, I think, you know, technology-wise, I think one of the there's going to be several big, big things in my mind that's going to change. I think LED, LED technology is going to be a big one. I think even the NDI technology is it's just kind of like in its um, beginning, and, and part of that technology helps you deliver uh, television and, and receive broadcast over the internet and be able to switch a show uh, if you're sitting in one location and be able to look at cameras in different locations that's tied into a, an IP network. And it can be a closed system like a piece of fiber, uh, or it can be a, a network system like our school system that we currently have, or any in-house system that you have multiple platforms of uh, 
camera. It's even down to uh, a, a phone camera that's that's probably tied into the internet. Uh, I think you can see that. I think going forward, you're going to see technology change with uh, um, if should the 3.0 grow. I think uh, audio-wise, uh, I think audio being delivered to you is going to get so much better and so much clarity. I know you probably go, well, right now it's pretty darn good, but no, it, it'll even get better. And I think with the emergence of, uh, of our delivery system with broadcasting, you're going to start seeing a change in how emergency services are delivered to the household too via the broadcast areas. So I, to me, I see a lot of changes in those areas. I, to me, it's very fascinating and I think it's, we're still on the beginning of a lot of big things happening. So on a podcast about television and broadcasting, you're telling us all to stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> So I apologize for that terrible joke, uh, but I thank uh, the panel, Jamie and Clee, Sally Ann and Chuck, for a great discussion of broadcasting and um, the future of television as well. Uh, tune in next time for another interesting discussion right here on 30 Bread Minutes. Today's podcast is Everybody.